Well, thanks. Thanks everyone for being here. Um, it's, uh, it's always healthy for me to um, give a lead. Uh, that's what we call it here in America uh, because it takes me back to what I went through and how I got here today. Um, I'm gonna try to keep it to 15 minutes because I always like the discussion that goes after. Um, and um, it's, uh, uh, it's always very therapeutic for me to do this. Um, you know, I've been uh, going through, actually it was at a Tusnua meeting where I heard about Oprah Winfrey's book, What Happened to You, um, it, which is excellent. I think uh, the Grateful Jeb, does, have some of you seen him at some of the meetings? I like the Grateful Jeb, um, but I think he had mentioned it. Um, and it's, uh, I've only started it, but it talks about early neural development, uh, the development of the brain and uh, fetuses and infants and, and children, and how important it is to have uh, stability and a reliable caregiver and a safe environment and feel nurtured. Um, and uh, if, uh, I, when there's something called adverse childhood experience scale or ACE scale, if you Google that, uh, it'll give you a bunch of questions about your childhood. And it, it just reminds me why I'm so damaged today. <laughs> um, because uh, we really got none of that. I have two brothers and uh, our mother was mentally ill. Uh, she had really serious paranoid disorder and she was prone to rage and her moods could flip on a dime. So, um, and my, my father was, uh, had his own troubles. Uh, he was just a very troubled man and uh, had a real sadistic streak, uh, even with his own kids. So from a very early age, I just remember feeling very anxious um, and just very uncomfortable with the environment. And uh, with my mother's paranoia and volatility, uh, we learned at a very young age that the world was a bad place uh, full of bad people that would do bad things to you uh, because that's what paranoids think. Paranoid people think, you know, everyone's out to get them. And we, we absorbed that. Um, and along with that message was that we were totally incompetent to take care of ourselves. Um, my mother always kind of knew what was best and uh, was really headstrong. Um, and we were made to feel very unempowered and uh, very incompetent to deal with things. So I just remember overwhelming anxiety uh, growing up. Uh, but there are, I think, three things that stick out. We, we were introduced to alcohol very early. Um, my, my dad was a physician and he would come home from work. And uh, one of the kind of warmer memories was that he would open a bottle of beer, one bottle, um, and all three of his sons would come down and he would pour a little bit in each glass and then he would drink. He wasn't a drinker, so a half a bottle of beer was enough for him. And so my early memories of alcohol were really very warm um, in that way. Um, but I remember it, my parents had a dinner party uh, when I was about eight years old and uh, the guests had left the living room where they were having cocktails and went into the dining room. And my older brother, who's about three and a half years older than me, we both went into the living room and just started downing leftover drinks. Um, I was eight years old and got a pretty good hit of alcohol. So we ran back upstairs and we were laying on his bed watching television. And in 20 minutes, you know, he was much bigger than me, but in 20 minutes, I mean, he was nauseated. I think he might've thrown up. I mean, he was miserable. 
And I just remember looking up at the ceiling, seeing that spin around and thinking how cool this was, that this was so neat. And I just, I felt so good and my anxiety was relieved. And I, it escaped me for years, but I mean, looking back now, I mean, that's an alcoholic brain. It's a young brain, but it's an alcoholic brain. I mean, no eight-year-old kid has that much alcohol and feels good and enjoys it. Um, so that stuck out. Um, and then when my older brother introduced me to marijuana when he was 16, so I was about 13, and it was something, neither of my brothers have addictive problems, um, but it was something like in, it was the summer and in the evening, um, you know, we would uh, roll a joint and go outside and pass it back and forth. And that was that we'd usually have a beer with it. And the very next day, you know, he found me in his marijuana stash late morning because I wanted to get high. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just I didn't have the brakes on it. I mean, I just liked mind altering things. Um, and, you know, he, he enjoyed it, but he didn't have that issue. And neither did my younger brother. Um, so that kind of stuck out. And this was, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and my dad being a physician, this is hard to imagine now. Um, but, you know, drugs like barbiturates and benzodiazepines and uh, all sorts of mood altering things um, weren't what we call scheduled here in the United States, where it needs a special prescription. Um, they were really loosely prescribed because we didn't understand the uh, nature of addiction. So I remember boxes of uh, uh, arriving with our utility bills at the front door, and they were boxes of uh, tuinols, which I think are called rainbows, and black beauties were amphetamines, and dexedrine was a big one, and librium and valium. And all this stuff would just be left at the doorstep. And my dad had this big box uh, with no lid that he would keep in uh, an open uh, stack of shelves on the bottom level in the hallway uh, in the house where he was raising three boys. So these drugs were always accessible. And my dad being a physician, um, you know, it was nothing to take a pill if your mood was bad. Um, yeah, I remember when we were driving our mother crazy on afternoons, she'd go to the box and take something. And in an hour, she was like full of bubbles. And uh, I don't know, some of you look old enough to remember the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper. And that was that was my mom. So um, our parents were of the mentality that if uh, they would rather have their kids experiment with drugs and alcohol at home in a supervised environment than out in the streets. Or So we were allowed to drink and smoke marijuana at home. Um, and I asked my dad when I was 14 what a barbiturate was, and they're not used that much anymore. Uh, things like secobarbital, uh, they're called reds on the street. But my dad explained it to me and said, do you want to try one? And I did. And, you know, it didn't do much for me. Um, so uh, I didn't have too much trouble with drugs and alcohol. I was pretty focused on school. Um, and then I finished college and was kind of not really doing anything productive. Um, my drinking and marijuana use started escalating and I was under a lot of pressure by my family to do something with my life because education was the, the currency in our family. Uh, you know, you could be as unhappy as you wanted. Uh, you could be as bad a person as you wanted, but you know, if you were really acing out in school, it was okay. So that, that was the currency. Um, so I had moved into this dental fraternity house in Indiana um, and uh, I was just working dead end jobs, but I watched the dental students come in and they were about my age. And I thought, eh, I can do this. And I applied and got in. And 
Um, my dad got diagnosed with lung cancer in my first year. Um, and in the second year, which was really tough in dental school, um, it, there was just a lot of studying and a lot of academic pressure. And I remember my dad saying when he was in medical school in the 1940s, the students during exams would just go into the pharmacy and scoop up a handful of amphetamines. I mean, they could do that and they would just speed through the exams. So my dad, his cancer was pretty advanced, but I remember asking him, you know, hey, could you write me a prescription for some amphetamine because I'm where you were. And he was more than happy to write for 30 pills of Ritalin. Um, he, he died of a few months after that. Um, but I remember the first time I took it and uh, it was like all the voices calmed down in my head and the veil that had been over my face for my entire life just lifted. And I just, I remember just this clear moment like I had never felt. And I knew I had hit gold. I mean, it was like nothing I had ever felt. Um, the problem was, you know, he he died after that. So I always joked that, you know, all he, all my dad left me was a substance use disorder <laughs> when he died. Um, and that was 1984. Um, so the 30 pills ran out. I didn't think too much of it. Um, finished dental school. And um, school was always a safe place for me because uh, I didn't have real life responsibilities. Um, growing up in a really dysfunctional family where my parents underwent this really uh, volatile divorce, just I've always had commitment and intimacy issues. So when I finished dental school, most of my classmates were starting their families and buying practices and taking on real responsibilities that really frightened me. Um, so I did what I felt safe with, which was uh, I had kind of gotten interested in medicine through my dad's illness, um, but I was already well into dental school. So um, I applied to medical school, which was perfect for me because it gave me a nice, safe environment. I could just bury myself in academics. So for the first two years, all I did was go to class, go to labs, study, take exams. And it was wonderful because, you know, I didn't have to have real life responsibilities. I wasn't committed to anybody. I wasn't responsible for a dental practice. Um, it, I liked learning. I mean, that, that stuff was always really interesting to me. Um, and when I was an intern, um, so this was 1992, it had been eight years since I had gotten exposed to Ritalin and the pills ran out. So eight years later, um, I was uh, I was an intern and I was dating a nurse and she had a, a son that was put on Ritalin and she didn't like the way it made him feel. Um, and I said, you know, I can take him off your hands. I'm happy to do that. Uh, so she gave me the Ritalin and my, my supply renewed. And as soon as I took it, what had happened is during the internship year, um, which was really tough back then. I mean, it, it was just, we were on call every third or fourth night. So I, I would go in at seven in the morning and work all day. And then the other teams would sign their patients out and we would work all night taking admissions and dealing with unstable patients. And then you had to work the next day. So it was like 36 hours at a time. I mean, it's just really draining. They don't do that anymore. Um, but I had gotten really depressed and lonely. So I noticed my recreational drinking was picking up a lot and being reintroduced to the Ritalin. It was just like the perfect storm. So um, the Ritalin was extremely euphoric um, and I could focus a lot when I needed to study. And then my alcohol use picked up too. And if you've ever done amphetamines, uh, you know, methamphetamine or cocaine or, or Ritalin, 
Um, you kind of have to drink just to kind of cool your nerves a little bit. So by the time I finished residency, um, I knew I, um, I didn't think I was addicted or I didn't think I was an alcoholic, although I was looking back. Um, but I knew that it would be very difficult for me to live without drugs and alcohol. Um, I knew that it had become an important part of my life. So I went into practice and lasted about eight months because I um, did what I usually did, which was to abandon the relationship. So I kind of lost uh, my girlfriend, which I feel bad about because I knew she was very hurt about it. And her dad had died shortly before then. And um, we had become very attached as much as I could at the time. But I, I lost my Ritalin source, too. Um, That's not a chapter of my behavior I'm particularly proud of because um, I, I know I caused her a lot of pain and I, I really regret that. Um, but I, I lasted about eight months in practice and the Ritalin cravings were driving me nuts. So I went to a primary care doctor. Um, and just in case you don't know, primary care doctors know very little about addiction and they can be manipulated very easily, um, especially by a colleague. So I gave him some story about ADD or something, and I found an article on riddling use in adults, and he didn't know what he was doing. So I exploited that, and he became my, my primary source for, uh, it was probably like the next 14 years or so. Um, and um, I, I, um, I, I never got into trouble. Um, I should have. I remember one night I was, uh, my shift started at seven in the morning, and I tried to wind the drinking up at about 11, but I remember one, once or twice, I, I couldn't stop drinking. So it was like three in the morning. I mean, I'm still pounding down. <laughs> I'm out on my balcony, you know, drinking cognac. I was high end by that time because I had all this nice income. So I could buy the really good stuff, uh, which kept me in denial, by the way, because, you know, alcoholics drink cheap whiskey and paper bags under a bridge. And I was a practicing physician buying high end spirits. Um, and that, that was a big part of my denial, but I couldn't stop drinking until about three in the morning. And I remember going in thinking, you know, I'm, I'm still intoxicated. I mean, if anybody smelled this, it, I, I would have gone into the system and been reported and there'd be all sorts of repercussions. So it's not that I shouldn't have been busted and uh, uh, taken out of uh, commission and treated uh, earlier. It just never happened. Um, and I started getting more and more worried about it because I noticed I was drinking more on call. Um, and I started kind of learning about addiction and uh, started going to an addiction conference. And um, I ended up talking to three addictionologists all anonymously. I wouldn't give them my name because uh, I was afraid they were going to report me if I told them anything. But um, I wanted to tell each of them my story. And this is how much I drink. And this is what I do. What do you think? Because I still wasn't convinced I was addicted to Ritalin. I was not convinced that I was an alcoholic because I hadn't, I hadn't had a DUI. I was very careful to cover my tracks, but I just didn't know. And this is one of the problems in the medical field with nurses is that when we get into trouble, um, we're so afraid of uh, licensing boards um, and uh, insurance companies and hospital privileges um, it's really hard to come forward and get treatment. Um, so a lot of times I intervene on physicians now. And usually when I get to them, it's, it's really advanced because it's been going on for a long time. But, you know, I think we're just very afraid to get treatment. Um, so each addictionologist didn't tell me what I wanted, which what I wanted was, eh, you know, it's probably a little bit much, but I wouldn't worry about it. None of them said that. <laughs> 
each one listened to my story and said, you know, you, you've got a real problem that you need to address here. And then I called the director of most states in the United States have physician health programs. They're specific organizations that help impaired physicians. So I called the director anonymously again and, and told him my situation. And I found out what was waiting for me if I didn't get a hold of this, which was going to be they were going to uh, suspend my license. Uh, they were going to mandate me to three months of residential treatment. Um, I would be in a five-year monitoring program with random uh, drug screening and all, which actually looking back would have been a very good thing. I think people come out of that and it's, it's very therapeutic and there's a lot of growth. But just him telling me that just put the fear of death in me because I, I realized that this was a serious issue and I needed to do something or they were going to do it for me. Um, so one of the addictionologists had suggested I try a 12-step meeting, um, which amazed me because I thought that was for alcoholics. And you know, I still didn't buy into that, you know, even though I could knock back 14 drinks on a drinking night. Um, and I'd gotten to the point where I was taking so much Ritalin uh, during the day and drinking so much alcohol in the evening that I had started adding some, some Valium at the end just to get to sleep because my nerves were fried. And uh, I think that's when I started reflecting on this, thinking, you know, most people don't do this. Most people don't am use amphetamines during the day, drink all evening, and then need uh, benzodiazepines to get to sleep. Um, so uh, the suggestion to go, there, there's a medical 12-step uh, meeting in most states called Caduceus, which is healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, dentists, pharmacists. Um, and uh, there was a doctor I knew that went to that meeting. Um, so um, I begrudgingly called him, told him I thought I had a problem, which was really difficult, uh, went to the meeting. And uh, that's what is what really turned the key for me, because I, I had been trying to intellectualize my way out of it, thinking, I mean, I had read all about addiction and what it does to the brain. And I had tried these little experiments to not drink for a month, which usually lasted, I think I made it 11 days once and, and they were painful days. It was, it was, it hurt. Um, but I think I was really ready to get sober. And that was the piece that was missing was that 12 step fellowship, because I was surrounded by people that uh, understood where I was at, had had much, much lower bottoms than me and new recovery. I needed a roadmap for recovery. Um, so that was uh, coming up on my 13th anniversary, uh, which is amazing because I remember I was eight days sober when I went to that Caduceus meeting. Um, and the recovery part has fallen into place uh, very nicely for me. Uh, I mean, I think I was really ready for it. Uh, I, I wanted to stop for a long time, but I didn't know how. I was afraid to um, identify myself, but having that support is what's made all the difference. And that's become a really important part of my life now, um, including this group. I mean, I really like the fact that I can look at the screen and actually like know so many people and have personal relationships and um, be open about it and, um, you know, talk about my addict brain, or as Tun says, the tornado brain, uh, that's the other half is, is living without the drugs and alcohol. I have to be me. And that's, that's not always easy. Um, but it's, uh, it's a much better life. And, um, I, you know, had I not stopped, um, boy, I professionally, I, I would have come to a halt and health wise, I was starting to get concerned because I was using so much Ritalin. I mean, I was always worried I was going to have a, a cardiac event, you know, which happens. Um, 
so that's, uh, let's see, that's my story in a nutshell. And uh, I'm interested to get feedback and hear other people's experience. Thank you.